you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. And uh, again, <clears throat> we've been walking through uh, this blessing section, verses 3 through 14. Uh, we moved into the prayer section, uh, verses 15, basically down to verse 19. And then we've been entering into this demonstration of the power of God, which is uh, the first illustration that Paul gives, verse 20 down to verse 23. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, what I'd like to do is just read uh, verses 19 down to the end of the chapter, just so it's fresh in our hearts and our minds. Uh, Paul writes this, Ephesians 1, verse 19. He says, I pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he performed or worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. Uh, what an incredible declaration. Again, Paul's talking about the power of God. And uh, he's saying, I, I need you to somehow grapple with, grab a hold of, and understand this overwhelming power of God. And again, this is all review, but... <clears throat> He uses four different Greek words for the word power in verse 19. And again, it's like he's going into the Greek language saying, how, how do I begin to describe the power of God? How do I begin to articulate something that truly is indescribable? So it's like he, he finds these four different Greek words for the word power and says, let me try to describe the power of God to you, which we understand is indescribable. Uh, again, one of those words is the word krotos. It has this idea of power, sovereignty, dominion authority. It's a kingly rule. Uh, one of them is the word iskis, which is that, oh, it's that uh, ability, that resource. Uh, it's that, uh, the power, right? Uh, one of them is dunamis, which is kind of the demonstration of the power. It's the flow of the power. It's the, it's the working of that power. And then one of them is energia, uh, again, which is this idea of energy or flow or demonstration or uh, working, that kind of an idea. So Paul says, here's God, and he has overwhelming power. Uh, here is God, and he has ultimate resource and ability and, and strength and sovereignty and dominion and power. And what is he doing? Oh, he is taking that power, and he's working that power in the world. And again, you go up to Paul and say, Paul, I need a couple of illustrations. Paul goes, oh, great, let me give you a few. Uh, number one is the life of Jesus. <clears throat> and again, we're in the middle of that demonstration or that illustration that Paul gives of the power of God in the life of Jesus. Now, I gave this to you last time, uh, but... I'm breaking verses 20 down to verse 23 and a couple uh, kind of subsections. And let me just give those to you again just so that you have them in case that helps. Uh, verse 20, the beginning of verse 20, um, I am calling the performance, or rather it's the demonstration of the power itself. That he is performing this work or he is working this power in the life of Jesus. Again, he's, he's taking a physically dead Jesus and reaching his hand into the deadness of Jesus. And the Father is bringing Jesus from death unto physical life, which is just absolutely amazing. And that, Paul says, is a performance or a demonstration of this power of God. Uh, verses, the end of verse 20 through verse 21 is what I'm calling the position, uh, which we're going to look at this morning. 
Uh, the end of verse 21 through verse 22, I'm calling the preeminence, uh, speaking about the realities and the centrality of who Christ is. Uh, the beginning of verse 23, uh, I'm calling the person, speaking of the body of Christ. And the end of verse 23, I'm calling the purpose, which is him filling all things in all ways. And again, we're going to be walking through this, albeit slowly, we're going to be walking through this. Uh, so today, again, I want to look at verse 20 and 21 with you, which is this whole idea of the position. Again, if you look at verse uh, 20, <coughs> Paul writes, speaking about this power of God, he says, which he worked or performed in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you realize that Jesus has a position? At this very moment, Jesus is somewhere. Isn't that a great thought? That it's not like, uh, uh, here's, we know that God's eternal, and we, we understand that God is omnipresent, and he is everywhere. Hey, we get that. And isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, Jesus became flesh. We call it the incarnation, right? He was born of a babe, born as a babe. And uh, he literally took on flesh. And isn't it neat that the moment you take on flesh, you recognize that you are limited. Right? <laughs> you're not everywhere. Some of you think you might be. But you are not. You are in this room. Right? If, if you're in this room, you're in this room. If you're listening via podcast, you're somewhere else. Because <laughs> my guess is you're not in this room. Or that's a little weird. <laughs> right? But you are somewhere. Right, that we, ha we are limited to time and space. You recognize that Jesus did that for us? That, that here is God who is eternal. Here is God who is omnipresent. And, and yes, the Father and the Spirit have retained that. It's not that they, they, they are still omnipresent. But you recognize that when Jesus was on this earth, he was not omnipresent. Right? In other words, he looks at his disciples, right? And, and he's up in Galilee. And he says, hey guys, we've got to go down to Jerusalem. And he smiles and goes, ha, ha, just kidding, I'm already there. See, he, he couldn't say that. Why couldn't he say that? Because he's flesh. He, he actually has physical form, which means it's not that he just pops in, pops out of the physical. He was physical. Like, pinch yourself, you're physical. He took that on, which means that if he's up in Galilee, guess what he gets to do for 80 to 100 miles? Walk down to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that here he is, he dies on a physical cross, and he put, was put in a physical tomb, and he raises, he was raised from the dead physically. That's awesome. For multiple reasons. One, we know that after, after the cross and, and the, the death and the resurrection, we, we know that he ate. Oh, do you know how awesome that is? That mean, By the way, Paul says that his resurrect, resurrection body is the same it's like a, it's the foreshadow or it's the first fruits of the resurrection body that we get. Which means what? Our resurrected bodies that we're going to have for all eternity? Woo! We're going to have digestive tracts. Yeah, the marriage supper of the Lamb is not just some metaphor. There is going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. That's right, with cake and ice cream. With no calories. I can't prove that part, but it's heaven. I'm, I'm presuming there's... There's going to be no calories. Or it won't affect us like it is here. Right? I can't prove that. Don't, don't quote that biblically. But, right? But hey, it seems like we're going to eat. That makes me excited. Isn't that awesome? 
Jesus was physical. Now, we understand that Jesus was able to do some things after the resurrection, like pop in, pop out, walk through walls. Hey, we get that. Uh, but you've seen Star Trek. That makes sense to you. And, uh, or if you think about dimensions, that, that could also make sense to you. But isn't it interesting that Jesus was physical? That in the book of Acts, those first couple, first couple of verses of Acts, talks about the fact that here's Jesus. He was physically raised from the dead. Hey, the disciples were slapping him on the back, and they were, they were eating hot dogs together on the campfire, and they were, they were just hanging out for 40 solid days. It was fish, just for clarity. But you know, our context would be hot dogs, right? But for 40 solid days, they were, they were hanging out. Why? So that the disciples had absolute confidence in the fact that he was raised from the dead. I mean, maybe one day, maybe it was a vision. Two days, maybe. But 40 solid days, you, you have to get to the end of the 40 solid days, and your conclusion is he's physical. He is physically raised from the dead. And again, we walked this through last time, but you begin to understand that this idea of the demonstration of the power of God, that, that Jesus was raised, raised from the dead physically, wasn't just, well, that's a, that's a great thought. Wouldn't it be wonderful for Christianity if, if our God raised from the dead was raised from the dead? No, that was actually the central message of the early church, that Christ is not dead. He is alive. He's physical. And then he goes up to the Mount of Olives, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. He's up on the Mount of Olives, and he ascends into a cloud into the heavens. And the angel says, hey, the same way, hey, just as you saw him ascend into heaven is the same way he's going to return. How did he ascend into heaven? Physical. How's he going to return? Seems like it's going to be physical. That makes sense to you? So, logically then, wouldn't it make sense to you that he's physical right now? And hey, you, don't have to, you don't have to agree with me on this. You can believe whatever you want. But it makes just sense to me. We, we are told that he is at the right hand of the Father. I hear Stephen, he's being stoned, and Jesus stands up. It seems like Jesus is physical. In the heavenlies, right this very moment. I think that's kind of neat. That he is actually, literally, somewhere right this very moment. Now, whether you want to agree with me whether or not he's physical, doesn't, that probably doesn't matter. But what really matters is that he is somewhere. And in our passage, look at this, look at verse, look at verse 20. Speaking about the power of God, Paul says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you recognize that Jesus, literally, at this very moment, is seated somewhere? Well, where is that? In the heavenly realms. Well, where, where is he? He's literally at the right hand of the Father. Now, we understand that the Father's spirit, and, and, and again, this gets a little complicated and all that, but isn't it neat that, that Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father? And you're like, well, why is that so significant? Oh, it's because of the position that he has. That, he, that he, was, he was not just raised from the dead and brought into physical life. That is amazing. But you realize the physically alive Jesus was taken and seated in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, he now has a position. Well, what's his position? The right hand stuff. Now, we've walked through this with you as students, but isn't it interesting that when you get into this biblical idea of the right side, 
There's a whole bunch of things associated with the right side. Let me just give you a short list. The right side is the side of blessing. It's the side of sacredness. The right is the side of authority, correctness, rescue, power, war, righteousness, marriage, wisdom, strength, judgment. Sorry, if you were trying to take notes, that was a quick list. But the right side has all that contained within it. I, again, we've used this illustration that, uh, that hey, if you go to a wedding, the groom's side is always on this side. The bride's side is always on this side. And you're like, well, why is that? Oh, significant. It's so that, hey, I do, I do, right? Important stuff. And, right, and, they, and they turn, right, as they're going to walk down the aisle. Now they're a married couple. So what does the groom do? The groom extends his right arm to his bride. And the bride links her left arm with his right arm. And you're like, yes, yeah, yeah, so what? No, no, that's significant. Why? Because the groom is saying, hey, I am giving you my strength. I, I'm extending my resource. I'm extending my strength to you. And what are you going to do? Well, as the woman, I'm going to take my, the side of my weakness, symbolically, and I'm going to lean upon the strong arm of my groom. It's actually a great picture of marriage. So that's why the groom's side is always on this side. Why? It's so that when he turns, he extends his right. Right? It, it's, it's, the right is a sign of relationship. Uh, the right side, now I know some of you are left-handed. We'll forgive you. But, uh, just kidding. <laughs> it's totally fine. Totally, that was totally a joke. Settle down. Ehud was a wonderful left-handed man in the book of Judges. Love Ehud. Eric is left-handed. He's a great guy too. Right? <laughs> but biblically, the right side was, the, was symbolic of strength, right? It, it's the side you hold a scepter as a king. It's the hand that you hold a sword, right, in battle. It's the side that you pronounce judgment with. All, all this stuff is associated with the right side. So isn't it interesting that Paul is saying that here is Jesus, and his position is at the right hand of the Father, which means what? He's the one with the authority. In fact, Jesus even said that in the book of Matthew, Chapter 28, all authority has been given to me. Why? Because of his position. That the fact that God is, has really taken and given all authority to Jesus Christ. That the Father says, hey, this is going to be the focus. Hey, I'm giving you all things. All things have been placed underneath your feet, according to our passage. Right? That he has this position. So he has all authority. He's been given all power. He has all resource. He has all strength. He now is, a, is in a position of judgment. But isn't it neat? It's not just a position of power and righteousness and control and authority. The fact that he's at the right side of the Father says that he's in relationship, that he has intimacy. He has oneness and closeness with the Father, which is what Jesus says all along, right, throughout the Gospels, especially the book of John. Jesus just over and over and over just talks about the fact of like, hey, the Father and I are one. Hey, we are tight. Man, the Father loves me. I mean, we are just, we are, hey, we're, we're brought into this thing. It's an amazing reality. So again, Jesus is in this position in the heavenly realms, and I, I, I would argue that he's physically there. So it's not like he's just become, you know, a, a ghost, and he's just like, ooh, right? He's like, I'm in the heavenly realms, and I'm kind of at the right hand of the Father. Seems like he's literally at the right hand of the Father. Sitting, making intercession for us is what Hebrews says, right? That he's, he's, he has this groan and this petition to the Father for us, which is an amazing reality, by the way. 
But his position in the heavenly realms has all authority, all power, all strength, all might, but it's full of relationship and intimacy and oneness. And the reason that's really significant is as, as we get into chapter 2, do you, do you recognize where you are located? Not physically, spiritually. Spiritually, Paul says in chapter 2, you are actually seated in Christ in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father. Which is what? A position of authority and power and might. But relationship and intimacy and closeness and communion. That I actually don't have the power. He has all the power. But when I'm in Christ, then you recognize that I'm actually protected by him. And I actually get to experience this reality of relationship and intimacy and oneness with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why? Because of his position. And it's all contained in this idea of the right or the right hand. Now, again, it's not just he has his position at the right hand. Look at verse 21. This position, Paul says, is far above. And again, we've looked at this as students, but far above. You, you recognize this idea of far above is not like, well, he's, he's about an inch taller than all, 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 all other things. That's not what Paul's saying. He, he's like saying, uh, you know, here's, here's a little acorn. It's on the ground, right? Uh, the top of the acorn tree is far above that acorn, right? There's, there's this huge distance. In fact, that's not even the idea of the word. The word here is like, uh, you see the moon? The moon is far above the acorn. In fact, that's not even a good, I mean, that's not even far enough, right? Pluto is not far enough. I mean, I mean how do you begin to describe this idea of far above? The idea, it is so superior, it is so elevated, it is, it is so over the top above that it's above all things. In fact, look, look at what Paul says in verse 21. Paul says that this position that Jesus has is far above all. That word all, by the way, you'll never guess what it means in the Greek. Anybody want to take a guess? All. You guys are good. See, you guys, you guys are learning Greek. Yeah, it's not just far above, like, eh, look, it's far above. It's far above. Well, far above what? All. So it's, it's, a, it's not just saying, well, four out of the five things he's, he's above. He's saying all. The emphasis is on all. Now, look at this. Look at what he's far above all of. Paul says he's far above all principalities, powers, mights, and dominions, and every, it's the same word, by the way, is all. Do you know what every means? All, yeah, it means every, <coughs> right? So he is far above every or all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every or all name that is named. Now get this, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So he is above all things in all places, not just for now, but for all eternity. That's like, that's a lot. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a lot of all. Right? That's a lot of every. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Now, <clears throat> and this may not mean anything to you, but when you look at those words, principality, power, might, and dominions, uh, let me just give you the definitions really quick. <laughs> at one level, I think this is funny. The word principality or rule can mean the leader, the first one, the chief, or the ruler. 
Uh, the word power and authority can mean power, authority, the power, power of rule or of government. Uh, by the way, it's the same word that uh, Jesus uses in Matthew, tw- Matthew 28, saying that all authority has been given to me. That's that word, that he's above all other authorities, right? Uh, then the word might or the word power in some translations is this idea. It's the word dunamis again. It's the word strength, power, and ability. Then there's the word dominion, which is the idea of one who possesses a dominion, lordship, master, possessor, king, uh, that idea. They all sound similar, don't they? But it's like what Paul's trying to articulate is, hey, there is no authority. There is no power. There is no might. There is no government. There is no spiritual realm. There is no, there is nothing that has something on Jesus. Because he is far above all of it. And again, you could say, well, is he talking physical? Is he talking physical governments and physical powers and mights and dominions? And I'd say, well, maybe. And hey, we would agree that Jesus is above all that. That, that, hey, that, that God sways the hearts of kings. There is no king, there is no authority, there is no government that can trump God. That God is above it all. That, that God has all the authority, and God has all the power, and God has all the might. Sorry, I said something and they caught it, and I was like, oops, that's not how I meant it. I said he trumps all, thing, all governments, and I was like, that is ironic with who's the president right now. Uh, but God trumps Trump. You know? <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to hold it in, and then Nick started laughing. I'm like, ah! That's, <laughs> that just cracks me up. Uh, that was totally accidental, but that was good. So you realize that if it's physical government stuff, if it's physical powers, if it's physical rulers, Christ is above it. Because, hey, there is no government, there is no power, there is no president, there is no king, there is no ruler who can sway. God's the one in charge of this thing. He's the one that has all the authority. Well, he said, well, maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's the spiritual hosts and the, you know, the, the demonic activity and the principalities and the powers, you know. Uh, Daniel talks about the fact that there's the prince of Persia and all this kind of stuff and, you know, of the, of the spiritual realms and the darkness in the air. And, and I'd say, yeah, that's probably included too. Because the reality is, I don't think it matters if it's physical or if it's spiritual. And again, there's debates among the scholars of which is, which is correct. You recognize that Jesus is still far above it. That whether it be physical or whether it be spiritual, Jesus still has a position of authority and power and might above it all. That there is no spiritual wickedness that can trump Jesus. There is no spiritual demonic activity that can somehow, you know, twist Jesus' arm behind his back. See, there is, no, there is nothing physical or spiritual that is ever going to have a position above Jesus. His position is above all things. Do you know how amazing that is? Please, contain yourself. Stay seated. I mean, that is awesome. If we really understood it. In fact, he goes on and he says, verse 22, that this position has placed all things in subjection under his feet. And again, that word all means all. And uh, it's interesting that in English, we, ha- we put the word things in the passage because we have to make, make it make sense. But the word things is not in the, in the original Greek. It just says he's put all in subjection under his feet. You realize that the position that Jesus has, which is a position of power and authority and control and dominion, but also of righteousness and of judgment and of relationship and intimacy, that position has given him all authority over all things, both physical 
and spiritual. In fact, everything has been placed underneath the feet of Jesus. Which tells us he is not intimidated by the stuff going on in our world. He's, he's not sitting there going, oh no, oh, another crisis, what am I going to do? He's, it's been placed under his authority. Now, that doesn't mean he's caused it, we understand that, but you recognize it's not taken him by surprise. That is so good, if we would understand that. Because what does that mean for our personal lives? There's nothing going on in our personal lives that has caught him unawares. And again, it's not that he has caused it. See, he doesn't cause destruction. He's not an author of sin. See, he's not promoting the junk in your life. If if someone's hurt you, it's not that he's like, yes, that's awesome, do it again. See, that's that's not his nature. But you realize that just because you've been hurt, he's not caught, he's not caught by surprise by that. That he, he wants to handle that situation. He wants to walk you through the difficulty and the pressure and the, the problem with you. Why? Because he has a position of authority and power and, and all things have been placed underneath his feet. In fact, let me just give you a couple of verses. I, I love these verses. <clears throat> Psalm 8.6 You have made him speaking of the coming Messiah, to have dominion over the works of your hands, you have placed all under his feet. Yeah, that's, that's that same declaration in the Old Testament. That this coming Messiah, speaking of Jesus, has a position above all things. All has been placed under his feet, under his authority. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 7 and 8, the writer of Hebrews says, that you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Isn't that awesome? Perhaps my favorite, Psalm 110, verse 1. The psalmist says, <clears throat> The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Where is Jesus at? The right hand. So the Lord said to my Lord, hey, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Do you realize what the enemies of God are? His footstool. And again, what's a footstool? That's that great thing you get to put your, you know, you stretch out, you put your feet on, right? So you're sitting in the Lazy Boy recliner, and you just stretch, stretch your feet out and just, ah, you rest your feet upon the footstool. And again, never once have I been sitting with my feet up on a footstool, and I thought, oh, no. What if the footstool rebels and kicks my feet off? Never had that thought. <laughs> Why? Because a footstool is merely there to rest your feet upon. It is under your authority. It's under your feet. It's, it's, you're actually resting upon it. Do, do you know what the enemies of God are doing? Being the resting place of the feet of our Messiah. He's not intimidated by the enemies. He's just flipped his feet up on there. Psalm 2, here, here is God, and here's all the enemies of God causing all this chaos, and they're coming against God. They're going to cause derision. Oh, no! What's God going to do? The enemies are against God. How's he going to handle it? Psalm 2 says he looks at all the stuff that they're trying to do against God, and he chuckles. He just laughs. It's like, that's, that's the best you got? <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Like, you're, you're telling me that that's the best you're... Why? Because they have no authority. They have no power. They, they have nothing on God. Because he has a position. 
Wouldn't it be neat if we understood his position? Paul's talking about a demonstration of the power of God. And he says, here, here's Jesus, deader than a doornail. You know, food for worms, pushing up daisies, right? He's not just dead, he's, he's dead dead. And, and what does the Father do? The Father takes his hand, reaches into the physical deadness of Jesus, and yanks a physically dead Jesus from physical death and brings him into physical life. And if that wasn't good enough, which it is, but if that wasn't good enough, he takes this physically alive Jesus and brings him into the heavenly realms and sits him at the right hand of the Father and gives him a position above all things. All principality, power, might, and dominion have come under the authority of Jesus. That Jesus has a position of power, authority, might, dominion, sovereignty, control, judgment, righteousness, relationship, intimacy, oneness, communion. That is his position. And isn't it neat that I'm seated in him there? That while I'm here physically, see, he's physically there, spiritually he's in me, and dwell, dwelling me through his spirit. I'm physically here, but spiritually I am there. As we consistently say that our position is in Christ. What are we talking about? We're not talking some, you know, this abstract woo kind of stuff. That literally, just as I am physically standing here in front of you, so I am spiritually in Christ in the heavenly realms, seated in him. And just as he is physically there, you realize spiritually he has come to indwell our lives. That the Christian life is, yes, my life in Christ, but it's also Christ's life in me. That it's this dual reality of the Christian life that makes it the Christian life. It's not one or the other. It's the, it's the two of them. What would happen if we begin to recognize that he has a position? That what God is doing and has demonstrated in the life of Jesus is that he has given Jesus a position above all things. And if I am resting in him, if I am seated in him, if I'm in a position of relationship and intimacy with him, don't you think I can trust him? Don't, don't you think I can just take a breath and relax a little bit? Don't, don't you think that I can, I can take the stuff that's swirling and, and the difficulties and the hardships of my life and just say, Jesus, I trust you. That, that I may not understand all that's going on. I may not understand all the pressures. And I, I may not understand why the finances are the way they are. And I, I may not understand why my family is doing their thing. And I, I may not understand the pressures that I'm dealing with here. And I may not understand the chaos here and the circumstances here and why I'm being tempted here. But God, I trust you. Because you have a position. And I don't have to be pushed around by sin. I don't, I don't have to be pushed around by temptation. I don't have to be pushed around by fear. I don't have to be pushed around by... I can, I can actually rest in the fact that you are above all things. And, and hey, if this world can push you around, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll be nervous. And hey, if the principality, power, might, and dominions can have authority over you, okay, I'll, I'll freak out. But hey, as long as you have a position above all things, why would I need to fear? Which is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, isn't it? That, hey, when we begin to recognize his position and that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then we can confidently say, what can man do to me? Because he's my hope. Do you realize that it is because of his position that we have confidence? It is because of his position that we have hope. 
It is because of his position that we can look at the temptations and, and all the circumstances and all the craziness that might be swirling around us and smile and be like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you can't even touch me. Yes, I can submit to the temptation. And yes, I can give in to the fear. And, and yes, I'm, I can be pushed around by the circumstance. But what happens if I keep my gaze upon Christ? And what, what happens when I begin to recognize that he's in a position where I'm actually in Christ immovable? That, that all that stuff actually has no legal authority to push me around anymore. And yeah, again, I can give into it. I get that. But you realize it actually has no legal authority to push me around. Do you know how many times that God, Jesus in the Gospels, said, hey, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't have anxiety. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's how everybody lives. Isn't it? I mean, we wake up and we go, oh, no. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm alive. But, oh, no. I am alive. Which means I got problems today. Yeah, that's, that's true. But wh why on earth did Jesus say, hey, don't fear. Don't fret. Don't have anxiety. Don't. Because he goes, because, Hello. If God recognizes that here's a little sparrow that falls to the ground, and you know sparrows. I mean, we sell them down at the temple, two of them for a penny. Nobody cares about sparrows. I mean, they're worth half a penny. And if God is so concerned about a half a penny sparrow that when it falls out of the sky, God knows about it, aren't you worth more than a half a penny sparrow? I mean, look at, look at this beautiful flowers and Green grass that we have. You're going to have to use your imagination today. But, and don't you see how God just gives the beauty to the valleys with all the flowers, and, and yet they don't, they don't worry about what they wear. I mean, come on, the birds don't worry about what they eat. Why? Because God, God cares for them. Do you not recognize that God cares more for you? See, there's something to do with the fact that the way that I live my life is all determined by my understanding and my perspective of his position. And I, when I begin to recognize his position, I think that can actually change everything about my life. Because I'm going to recognize that my life is in him. And if he's above all things, I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I, I don't have to actually fear the temptation in my life. Because he is valiant. He, he's an overcomer. He has brought the victory. Wouldn't it be amazing if we lived like this? By the way, I, th I think if we live like this, you know what we'd have to call ourselves? We may have to call ourselves Christians. Do you recognize his position in your life? That he's the one that has all the authority? He's the one with all the power? He's the one with all the control? And if I'm in him, I can rest in that. And even if I don't understand the circumstances that I'm facing, even if I don't understand why certain hurt and pain is coming to my life. Even if I don't understand all those details, you recognize that I can still trust him. And it's not that he's caused necessarily the issues. I get that. But he hasn't abandoned me in the middle of the issues. There's been a new thought I've been pondering the last couple of days, and it's this idea, Philippians talks about this fact. In fact, let me just, let me just get this to you. Uh, Philippians 4, uh, verse 4. Love this. Paul is speaking, again, he's writing from a prison cell. He <laughs> I mean, has to be miserable. Do you know how many times in the book of Philippians, Paul uses the word joy, rejoice, be glad. 
And you're like, wow, are you like on a sunny beach in Florida somewhere? Paul goes, no, I'm in a prison cell. Now, if I was on a sunny beach in Florida, I might say, rejoice, be joyful, be glad. But if I'm in a stinky, dank prison cell, I don't think that word's going to come out of my mouth. Yet listen to what Paul says. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, do you know what the word always in Greek means? Anybody want to guess? Yeah, good, good guess, always. And in case we missed it, look at the end of verse 4. Again, I will tell you, rejoice. I think he's trying to tell us something, isn't he? Now, he goes through this, but then look at verse 7. Uh, oh, by the way, verse 6, uh, again, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with gratitude, make a request known to God. But look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus? What would that even look like if our lives were marked with that? What, what would it look like if we had actually, it doesn't matter the circumstance, we were marked by peace because he is our peace. Ephesians 2. See, wouldn't it be amazing if, if I could handle my world, if I can handle my situations, if I can handle my chaos, if I can handle my temptation with a calm confidence and in fact it is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding which begins to guard my heart and my mind and isn't it interesting that if that was true in my life the world would see that what the world sees is the fretting what the world sees is the, is the anxiety what the world sees is the division wouldn't it be neat if the world saw peace because they saw him how on earth are you going to pull that off you're going to have to know his position. Because if you don't recognize his position, you'll never rest and find peace in that. If you know his position, you can have confidence that he is your peace. See, is it, wouldn't this change everything for us? Let's pray. Lord, uh, I think so often times we want to be Christians, and, and we, want to, we want to showcase the fact that we have this, and so we grit our teeth, and we, we, we go through the motions, and we go through the language, and we go through the... But inside, Jesus, it's like we are so full of turmoil and fear and anxiety, and we've been the play toy of the enemy for so long that we don't know if there's even a hope of victory or triumph. What would it look like if I had a life of peace? Not because of my circumstances. See, Lord, I've been dumbfounded by the thought that it's not that I have peace from my circumstances. It's I have peace in my circumstances. And Lord, what's been mind-boggling to me lately is the fact that over and over and over again, Paul wrote not that he would have peace from, but that you would be his peace in the circumstance. See, it's not the removal of the circumstance it's not the removal of the pressure. 
I get that, Jesus. But what would happen in the middle of my circumstance? What would happen in the middle of my situation? What would happen in the middle of my family? What would happen in the middle of my finances? See, what would happen in the middle of my world if I didn't just have peace from all these things? What if I had you in the middle of them? Lord, I am convinced that that would change our lives. And the only way we're going to be able to pull that off is if we know your position. And it's not just the fact that you are alive, as phenomenal as that is. <laughs> it's so awesome. But it's not just that you're alive, it's that, that you have a position far above all, both physical and spiritual. Lord, there's, there's no human reality, government, king, or president who can ever back you into a corner. Lord, there's no spiritual force that can ever make you do what it wants. See, you have the authority and sovereignty and control and power over all things. I think I can trust you. I think I can rest in you. And Lord, I recognize that it's not that you're causing my circumstances, but you have not abandoned me in the circumstance. That you're smack dab in the middle of it. That, that you want to be my peace in the middle of my moment. By moment, challenge or difficulty. That hey, when things are going right, woo, thank you Jesus. Because you're smack dab in the middle of it. And when things are not going right, woo, thank you Jesus. Because you've not left me. And you are my peace right in the middle of my situation. Because of your position. Far above all for all time. Lord, could you somehow ingrain that upon our minds? Jesus, could you somehow write that upon our hearts? That, hey, when we face temptations, when we face trials, when we face hardships or difficulties or pressures, somehow, Jesus, that we would begin to recognize that it's that it's not us trying to grit our teeth and, and make it through and manage the chaos, but we can actually have peace in the middle of it. And that becomes a demonstration to the world around us of who you are, because you are our peace. Lord, thank you for such a reality. And Lord, we just want to praise you for the fact that you have a position far above awesome. We do love you, Jesus. We just give you the praise and the glory for you are good. We just proud this in your holy and precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.